Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Jack Healy. And today on the Gotham Sports Machine, we're going to be talking about New York basketball with our co-host, Mark Healy, and our guest, Brian Geltziler, who's the founder of HoopsCritic.com, a host on SiriusXM's NBA radio, and a contributor at NBA TV. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing great, Jack. Thanks so much for having me, pal. Doing great. Doing great. Uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. Thanks for coming on. It seems like this NBA season was just so fast. It flew right by. I mean, the playoffs are right around the corner. And this is going to be a great playoffs. I've been excited for it all year. How do you, how do you guys feel about the playoffs? Well, I, listen, I think it's, you know, it's a tale of two conferences, as it always is. But, you know, you have, starting with the West, the Western Conference is stacked. It is you have a lot of teams. And when I say a lot, I mean, you can talk about up to seven teams that are all have kind of played themselves to a similar level here. Um, And in the playoffs, you know, it's going to be obviously it's always about matchups, but you'll get a lot of that here. But the thing is, the number one seed in the Western Conference is going to be a big benefit, as is the number six seed, because the number six seed is going to keep you out of the plane. And the plane could be a pain in the rump in the West especially if you get a hot Steph Curry in Golden State. That becomes a major, major hassle in the Western Conference. The other thing is that, you know, even if you're in the two seed and the seven seed, because well, when you look at seven top teams and what we're talking about, Utah, Phoenix, both L.A. teams, Denver, Portland, and Dallas, in the two seed, you're going to get one of those, likely Portland or Dallas. Those two teams are both tough teams, both built well for the playoffs. That's going to be difficult. The one seed's going to get a little bit of an easier type of draw. And don't get me wrong. The Memphis Grizzlies are tough. The Warriors have Steph Curry. You know, so y- you certainly could have a tough, tougher matchup there. But nonetheless, it's not one of these proven seven teams. In the East, it's a little bit different. Because in the East, what you're looking at is – all due respect to a team like the Knicks that's sitting in the four right now, and they're going to be a tough out for anybody, but the top three teams have separated themselves from everybody else in Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and the one seed is enormously important because if you're the one seed in the East, you only have to play one of those other two teams. If you're the two seed, you got to go through two of them. And with the way Milwaukee looks, they're different defensive looks, although the record's not as good last year. They may be better suited to win in the playoffs than they have the last three years. And Doc Rivers has done a tremendous job with Philadelphia. And Brooklyn, which I'm sure we're going to get into, you know, Brooklyn is probably the most talented team in the league. I mean, the biggest headline is that the New York Knicks are actually in the playoffs. Not only in the playoffs, they're going to be, if they keep this pace, a four or five seed is a very winnable series for them. I think the they've been giving the Hawks the problems all year. They can't guard Julius Randle. And the Celtics, I mean, every time they've beaten us, it's it feels like we they shouldn't have. We should have won that game, whether it was us playing down to them or the refs screwing us over. It was every game against the Celtics has been tough. So what, what do you think the Knicks playoff chances are this year? How, how far do you think they'll go? Well, I listen, I think at most they'll win one round. I think I think ultimately against the Brooklyn of Philadelphia or Milwaukee, they're just they're kind of bringing a knife to a gunfight as hard as they play, as great as Randall's been, not as good as Randall's been, as great as Randall has been. And as well as R.J. Barrett has played and developed, it's still against those top three teams. I, I can't see the Knicks winning a playoff series against any of them. I do think they can survive around. 
I will tell you this. I agree with you on Atlanta. The Knicks have kind of owned Atlanta this year. Atlanta, in the end, just doesn't guard well enough. And the Knicks are, you know, third in the league in defensive efficiency. They're one of the top defensive teams in the league. And the thing is about the Knicks is they're switchable. They bring a lot of similar-sized athletes, and they're willing to switch when they have to, but they're not married to it. It's a brilliant defensive philosophy, but we shouldn't be surprised. That's what Tom Thibodeau does. So, And he has them exactly where they need to be on that end of the floor. The mat, the playoff matchup that I worry about for the Knicks in a 4-5, it's not the Miami Heat either, because the Knicks will give the Heat all of their grind and more, and there's something missing in the Heat this year that just hasn't been there. And I think fatigue and the short turnaround plays a big role. I think age certainly factors into that as well. Miami just doesn't look the same. Boston scares me for the Knicks in the first round. And I know Boston's been terrible lately. I do. It's just that, you know, this is a team that's been to the conference finals three of the last four years with a very similar cast of characters. And Jalen Brown has moved his game up a level here. Tatum hasn't been as good as he was last year. But a lot of that is the residual effects of COVID that he's had to deal with. And you certainly could see him kind of finding his rhythm in a big way once the once the playoffs start. Now, listen, Boston has been exposed this year on the defensive end of the floor because everybody attacks Kemba Walker and pick and roll. And Miami kind of did that last year in the playoffs. And it really got Miami to go to the finals and win that conference final last year. But I, so I think Boston is a little weaker than they were last year, but they are a really talented team. And the thing about them, the other big weakness for Boston is the young bench. But the young bench has garnered some experience. And although I'm not the biggest Evan Fournier fan on earth, you add Evan Fournier to that group, and, you know, Tristan Thompson coming off that bench, you have enough veterans that maybe the bench gives them some kind of decent production. Boston is the one team that the Knicks could face here in the first round that worries me. The last thing that you would want is Jason Tatum to start turning up in the playoffs because he is a playoff killer. He's shown it since he's come in the league that he can elevate his game and he could be that guy down the stretch in the seven-game series, even against LeBron James. Yeah, he could do it against anybody. And, and, and the thing is for the Knicks, and, and listen, it's funny because Jeff Van Gundy was on my NBA radio show uh, two weeks ago, and he said something interesting. He said one of the smartest moves that Tom Thibodeau has made in coaching the Knicks this year is the reliance on Reggie Bullock. The Knicks didn't have a 3D type of guy really on that roster. And he hung his hat on Bullock to taking the toughest, of, the toughest defensive perimeter matchup in every, in every game and being a guy that just takes the open threes when they're available. And Bullock has excelled in this role. This was the way when he came into the league, this was why teams loved him. They envisioned him in this role and he's finally stayed healthy and gotten it done for the Knicks. With that said, Jason Tatum is, you know, you can count on one hand, the amount of guys that are bad shot makers in the way Jason Tatum is. And what I mean by that is you can guard him as well as you could possibly guard him, but Tatum will take an awfully difficult shot and he's decent at hitting difficult shots. That's one of the special parts of his game. So for the Knicks here, they could defend Boston really well, but I, I agree with you, Jack. I think that you fall victim here pretty quickly. If Tatum gets hot, it, it becomes, it could be, it could finish quick for them against Boston. That would be a major worry to me more so than in a Miami with a Jimmy Butler or a Bam out of Bayou. Then, Miami likes to get physical with you. And the one thing I'll tell you about this Knicks team, they back down from no one. They will play physical basketball with everyone. And listen, Nerlens Noel has become one of my favorite players in the league because he's one of these guys that does everything but score. And on this team with Randall being the dominant offensive presence, you don't need him to score. But he can switch onto guards on the perimeter and does a great job of that. And for a guy that's pretty slight and pretty lean, he does a really good job of playing the physical brand of basketball. And people don't notice that He's the only 
player in the NBA to be averaging a steal and a block. And it's not even just one block. He's fourth in the NBA in blocks per game, two and a half. I mean, he's a monster down low. Every time I see someone driving on, what are you doing? You're going to get sent back. Yeah, he does that. And, and, and I'll also say this to you, Jack. It's not just about the steals and it's not just about the blocks. It's about the shots that he changes and the shots that he discourages. Because you're right. You just said, listen, guy goes to the basket. Be careful when you're coming there against Nerlens because Nerlens doesn't care if you dunk on his head. He will go to block anything he can possibly block. And he has become a guy also that plays good defense without fouling, which is a skill in this league. It's not a skill that necessarily stats measure, but he plays good defense without committing a ton of fouls in terms of what he can test. One of the better help defenders in the league, a really underrated guy. And he's another one like Bullock where he, he just staying healthy was always been a big issue for him throughout his career. But I do think that that's a common theme here for the Knicks. You know, Rose has been a guy that struggled to stay healthy at times. And even the games he missed were COVID protocol related this season. And, you know, Tom Thibodeau keeps guys in great condition and great shape. It's a prerequisite. And you'll see what happens to guys that don't stay in that shape. They end up riding the bench like Kevin Knox. Like you, you have to be in top-notch condition to be able to play for Tom. Guys like Noel and Bullock and Rose, they've been able to do that. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Derek Rose because I really think, Brian, that he's been – really a, a difference maker. You know, Jack, have, Jack and I have been watching the games and every time Rose plays, he, the team just looks completely different. You know, uh, whether, you know, I, and again, you, you mentioned it before about Randall, you know, uh, having such a great season, except when he tries to handle the ball. I mean, it's been pretty bad. I mean, he, I don't know how many turnovers he averages uh, a game, but do you see any scenario where Derek Rose they're, that, that they're kind of limiting his minutes and not starting him because when the playoffs start, do you think that Rose will have more of a role or do you think that this is what his role is going to be? Because I think he could be a difference maker when you talk about a seven-game series because if you add his dynamic and he's playing 35 minutes a night in the playoffs uh, and limiting the turnovers uh, of, the, of the, you know, the half, especially in the half-court offense, uh, do you think Rose can be a, a difference maker or is basically what we see is what we get right now? No, I think Rose can be a difference maker. Let's keep this in mind, Mark. There are nine, I believe the number is 19 and eight with Derek Rose in the lineup this season. I mean, he's been that good for them. And, but I will tell you this. I don't think he's going to start games. I think that Tom very much likes the Rose quickly look together off the bench. I think Rose will finish every game, but I think that Tom loves that because he feels like second teams struggle with the level of quickness with both of them. And you have Rose who is so good, not only in transition, but in the half court off the dribble. And then you have quickly also very good in the half court off the dribble, but an excellent three point shooter as well. So I think he really likes the combination of those two. And, and part of this, and this is what's a beautiful thing about the Knicks this season, they're developing their young guys in a winning situation while they're winning. Part of Rosen quickly together is to not give quickly as much playmaking respect responsibility and worrying about getting others involved it's kind of letting quickly do what he does well and so I think Tom likes that also and look look what's happened with Toppin lately Toppin's been playing great and he they've kept Toppin in this backup four role and they haven't really moved him from it and lately you've seen some real signs of life played well against Chicago last night he's looked very good here over the course of the last two weeks and listen he took a lot of heat earlier in the season as being a guy that was a potential draft bust but you got to remember when the Knicks drafted him 
They didn't envision Julius Randle doing this. Julius Randle has surprised everybody, including the, the uh, Tom Thibodeau and Leon Rose and the Knicks front office. So it, some of this, yes, with Rose, getting back to your Rose point, some of this is totally about Rose being just better against second team guys and Peyton probably being a better defender, which is why they've had him in the starting lineup more. But also it's about the Rose quickly combination and how good that is for Emmanuel quickly. I also, I've been going back and forth on this all year because I'm like, how is Rose not starting? But it's just, I recently realized that he's never going to start and it's not because of how good he's playing. I think Tibbs just loves having him off the bench because a lot, if you talk to a lot of people, they'll say that the Knicks bench is their strength and it's when they win, they'll, that's how they'll win the games. is when their bench shows out and their bench will outscore the other team's bench. And when you have D-Rose dropping 20 off the bench every other night, I mean, I, it gets you excited. And when your starting lineup is shooting well, that's what puts together a Knicks win because you know they're going to play great defense now. You just need the scoring. And I think he wants to balance the scoring between the two units. Yeah, listen, I, I definitely think that that's part of it. I think that you look with Randall and Barrett bring you plenty of offense in the starting lineup. And with Bullock getting open looks there, I think that helps also. And this is a spot where Rose has gotten comfortable. Keep in mind, Tom Thibodeau had Rose in Minnesota and brought him off the bench. And this is kind of a, an agreement between the two of them of, what can extend Derrick Rose's career because he wants to play for a lot more years. He's had a lot of injury issues in the past. You know, notice that for all the, the minutes heat that Tom takes for running guys, big minutes and Randall and Barrett, he doesn't do that with Derrick Rose with Derrick Rose. Part of coming off the bench is being able to limit his minutes and having him play more minutes that matter. And then the other thing that helps Tom also is having some of some guys that he's had in the past that understand his system, understand exactly what he's expecting from the other players. And Todd Gibson factors into that. I mean, last year, Todd Gibson was on the Knicks. And quite frankly, I thought he was terrible. And I didn't understand why the Knicks continue to roll him out there without Mitchell Robinson on the floor, because he just he it, they were a young team going nowhere where it made no sense this year it makes some sense first of all whatever it is i don't know if tom's got magic fairy dust he sprinkles on Taj gibson gibson's a different guy when he is playing for tom Thibodeau and has been that guy this year and in the absence of mitchell robinson with his injury gibson's been a godsend so having gibson and rose coming together the other thing that's been important is you know obi toppin is learning nba defense he was not a wonderful college defender and tom believes he can turn him into a, a decent defender in the nba he's not great and get down into a stance he's better in the post he's better in help there's all that but having gibson next to him having gibson and take some tougher, stronger matchups has kind of allowed Toppin to learn a little bit better on the fly and hasn't really hurt the Knicks all that much. And if anyone wants to see Obi Toppin win, it's definitely me because he just looks like a new – he seems like a New York guy. He just loves the atmosphere. Every time he makes a big play, everyone's cheering him on. He gets all excited. Even when he's on the bench, he gets excited for his guys, and he's always jumping up and down. And he's just a guy you want to see succeed. So now watching him and seeing how much more comfortable he is shooting that three ball and he's starting to get that corner three better. I mean, I, I just really want to see him find his role within Thibodeau's offense and his team. You know, Jack, he's a great kid. He's a great kid. And he's, he's a Brooklyn kid. So he understands what it's like to be in New York, to play in New York. And I think the other thing you have to understand is that, you know, listen, the median of fans turned on him about two months ago 
Toppin's a bust. You should have taken Tyrese Halliburton. For a rookie, for a 22-year-old guy, that's hard. That's not easy to have that stuff said about you. That's really difficult. And he he handled it, and he handled it because the Knicks let him know, we are behind you. No matter what anybody says about you in public or in the media or on the radio or on websites, it doesn't matter to us. You just keep doing what you are doing, and you're going to get minutes, and we're going to develop you, and you're going to have a role here. And what's happened, They he stayed with it. He's had a role. His three-point shooting's got better. I'd like to see him be used a little more as a screener and screener role because I think his real strength as an NBA player is as a pick-and-roll diver. I think he's, a, he's brutal to handle in the paint. And you see some of that with some of the dunks that he has. He had a great dunk last night in transition where Rose hit him with a pass where he got out run on the floor. More of that's going to help as well. But, but at the Knicks' general level of faith in this kid has really helped him Listen, New York can be unrelenting. New York can be unforgiving. And Obi Toppin got his first early lesson. But you don't get through that and thrive through that without organizational and coaching staff support. Toppin has that with the Knicks. All right. I'm uh, going to – oh, you got a question, Dad? Yeah, I, I got a question. Uh, you know, when, you know if, if – to, just to switch gears to Brooklyn because, you know, you get a lot of, you know – you you cover the you cover the sport on a national level and you really dive deep into all the teams and you know when people are looking at um, you know the Nets right and you you mentioned before how you think they're the most talented team in the East and I look at who what this team is uh, you know I think that because of all the off the court drama whether it's you know Tyree Kyrie you know leaving on, for personal reasons or Durant, you know, taking himself out of games because of a thigh contusion, uh, you know, and, and the guy who's been the least delicate genius was James Harden, who's been nothing but, uh, you know, an incredible teammate since he's come over. But now with the hamstring and the setback, how much does that affect your prognosis for this team, pardon the pun, uh, in the playoffs if Harden can't come all the way back? Will Durant and Kyrie Irving be enough for this team to still be considered the favorite in the East? Yeah, my short answer is yes. And the reason I say that, Mark, is because I listen, I picked them before the season started, before they made the Harden trade. And they have filled in for, you know, as much depth as they gutted to go get Harden. They've done a tremendous job of filling in around. Now, listen, when Blake Griffin gets bought out of a $38 million deal and wants to come to your team, well, that helps also. But they've developed guys. They've done a nice job. Listen, Luau Cabarro is a good player. He's done a great job for them. I like him a lot. You know, Tyler Johnson, who had a role with the Heat for a couple of years, and I know Sean Marks has been very fond of for a long time. He's all of a sudden emerged in a ball handling role for them and done a really nice job. The organization has developed Nicholas Claxton, who quite frankly in a playoff setting may be their best option at the five position. And, and so I like still like Brooklyn a lot. But I will also say this. I think that the difference between Brooklyn going to the finals is not James Harden. The difference between Brooklyn winning in the finals very well is James Harden. I think to win a championship, they're going to need James Harden back. And I have two concerns with Harden. One is he had one setback with the hamstring already. And part of that was coming, no matter what anybody says, part of him having a hamstring injury this season was coming into camp in what is a grueling NBA season with games, you know, coming fast and furious at these teams. But it, 
was coming there out of condition. And, and I think that was an issue for Harden here that followed him to Brooklyn a little bit. So one thing is obviously him getting hurt again, but then conditioning is another issue. You know, James Harden's going to come back for the playoffs and who knows what kind of condition he's going to be. And that's why I will tell you, the Nets getting the one seed is really important. And although earlier in the year, you know, they took a lot of heat from me included when they had a back-to-back in Minnesota and Philadelphia. And if you remember, there was a police shooting in Minnesota on a Monday. They were not supposed to have back-to-backs. Kevin Durant made the trip to Minnesota, so they let him play Tuesday, and they sat him on the Wednesday night in Philadelphia. And I didn't agree with that. I felt like they should have played him that night because that was a major, major matchup for them in a game that they lost. They played hard. But they lost. In the meantime, they've taken the one seed back. But the one seed's going to give them a cupcake in the first round. And not listen, not that the team they get at seven is going to be terribly hard. But if by some chance that ends up being Miami or Boston, that's not going to be a first round picnic for them. And they need a first round picnic because James Harden is going to need some time to get his legs underneath him when he comes back. And I don't think he's going to be back for any time during this regular season. So the, the net seeding is going to be really, really important here. And they believe that, too, just so you realize they've been playing Kyrie Irving lately. I know he's not playing tonight in Indiana, but they've been playing him with Durant out on back-to-backs to give themselves a chance night in and night out. And by the way, I know Kyrie Irving generates a lot of off-court drama with, you know, sitting games and not giving reasons. And, you know, we get a personal reasons a lot from Kyrie Irving. Let, let, let it not cloud the fact that he's having the best year of his career. He looks fantastic, and I've never seen him defend in the way that he's defended this season for the Nets. He's been a force on both ends of the floor, and his hustle and his work and his not quitting on any plays ever, it's something that when I watch him, I love watching him, and I appreciate that in a unique way. I feel like people don't give him enough credit because every time one of these guys has been out, he's stepped up, and he's had that big game and – I saw it completely in when they played the Pelicans. It seemed like every time they needed to hit a big shot, he would pull something out of his hat. And it was just every single time down the court, he was hitting something crazy. And I just, I think that I'm not as worried about the Nets because you have three of the best players in basketball. And every time one of them is struggling or not there, the other two seem to step up and play better. So I'm really not worried. Well, I'll say this, Jack, and that's that, and that works very well during the regular season. That can have a shelf life in the playoffs, depending upon who your opponent is. Now, again, I, I think that whether Harden is there or not there, I think that the toughest opponent for the Nets in the East is Philadelphia, just because you got a Joel Embiid problem that you don't have a ton of answers for. Now, you know, you got six fouls with DeAndre Jordan. Um, he's been better lately, but he's a shell of what he once was. Um, what else do you do? You're going to put Blake Griffin on him? I mean, Embiid's going to have a party. You, you know, Claxton, as much as I love Claxton, He's, you know, not in the same strength category as Embiid. And what the Nets are really going to have to work on for when they play Philadelphia is shutting everybody else down. Like the Nets aren't going to be able to beat Philadelphia in a playoff series if Tobias Harris is averaging 25 points a game. They're just not. They're going to need to hold him under 20 because Embiid may average 40 in that series. Like Embiid's going to do anything he can and they can't stop him but you're going to have to make sure that other guys don't get going. You can't let Seth Curry get going and hit four threes. You know, you got to watch George Hill. Ben Simmons is going to try to do his thing in transition, transition defense 
is going to be important. So that's going to be the toughest spot for the Nets here. And that's the one thing to realize that regular season basketball, you can get by without one of these guys. And again, I still think the Nets can get to the finals without Harden. It's a harder road, but I think they can. With that said, Philadelphia to me, if I'm the Nets, is the one team that truly scares me. I've been saying that all year. I'm, I'm, the Sixers have always been one of my favorite teams. I'm the Knicks fan, but Joel Embiid's my favorite player. And every time someone asks me, how do you stop the Nets? I just say Joel Embiid because he's unguardable down low and they don't have anyone that's going to be able to hang with them. And now that you have Doc Rivers, who's unlocked Tobias Harris, who's turned him into a 30-point guy some nights, I mean, it is very hard to guard. But I think the Nets have the role players to combat that because you got guys like Jeff Green, you got guys like Blake Griffin, TLC, Bruce Brown. You got these guys stepping up and having a big game here and there. And if they get that, they get a 20-point night from one of those guys, I think they'll be fine. Well, they're going to get production from, you know, all those guys at certain points in time. My worry about the Nets has nothing to do with what they do offensively. My worry about the Nets is defensively. And we talk about, like, just missing one of their big three and still being able to go win. The one they can't afford to not have in the playoffs is Durant. And it has nothing to do with offense. Irving and Harden will generate more than enough offense for you with all those other guys that you mentioned. They're fine offensively. Kevin Durant, and this is crazy. Kevin Durant may be the best offensive player in the NBA. The the reason that the Nets need him so badly doesn't have much to do with offense. He's their best defensive player. They have to have him on the floor defensively. They do not have enough good quality defenders to be able to survive playoff series without Kevin Durant. He is that important to them. So I, I think that's one thing to keep an eye on with the Nets. The Nets are going to be defined in a place. We know they're going to score. They got to get stops. Listen, they're the 25th ranked defensive team in the NBA in efficiency. No team has come from that low to win a title. I believe the Lakers in 01 were like 21st with Shaq and Kobe and coasted a lot through that season. For the Nets, coming from that low defensively to be able to win a championship is unprecedented. And I think ultimately they're going to have to be a different team defensively in the playoffs than they've been during the regular season. Now that you mentioned that, I'm just – the more you say how Kevin Durant's their best player defensively, it's also making me think how the Bucks could give them so much problems if Durant's banged up because who is guarding Giannis? He's just an absolute force, and it seems like with Drew Holiday – He's just going to be better in the playoffs because they're going to have a pick and roll there. And that's they're going to be another really tough series for them. If they play Milwaukee in the Eastern Conference Finals and they got a banged up Durant, banged up Harden, and Giannis is just going on a tear, maybe he's finally can, can uh, break out. And if, Dur- if Durant's not there, Jack, they can't be Milwaukee. You're absolutely right. And the thing about a challenge for Milwaukee in a playoffs here and, and – What's, good, what's going to be Milwaukee's biggest issue is how they use Brooke Lopez. They love Brooke Lopez defensively. You know, they can play that drop style, and he patrols the paint as good as anybody. When Brooke Lopez, for his first, I don't know, seven, eight years in the league, was a low post force, he's a three-point shooter now. And they don't ever put him on the low post. They use Giannis in that area. And the problem for them is that if they're not going to have Lopez play bully ball because uh, the Nets are weak at the five spot. We know that if they're not going to have Lopez play bully ball, they might as well keep them on the bench. And what happens is that, and although I love Milwaukee's small lineup with Giannis at the five, now that they brought P.J. Tucker in, 
it's still playing small against the Nets. Milwaukee doesn't match up well enough. And there's no reason for the Sixers to ever play small against the Nets because you don't want to take your best player off the floor. But for Milwaukee, they may try to – if I'm the Nets and Lopez is going to stand out at the three-point line, I'm playing Blake Griffin and Jeff Green exclusively at the five and know that I can space the floor and have my three shot makers have all the space that they need to operate and know that I can guard Lopez with either a Griffin or a Green because all he's doing is hanging out at the three-point line. Brooke Lopez wants to go in a low post, and you got Griffin or Green on him. All of a sudden, you have a similar problem that you have when you play Embiid. But Milwaukee doesn't do that with Brooke Lopez. And, and again, Mike Budenholzer has shown us this season a willingness to make adjustments defensively, make adjustments with his lineups. Let's see how that carries over to the playoffs. That's been a common theme of Milwaukee's playoff failures the last two years. There's been a lack of adjustments on both ends of the floor, but especially defensively by Mike Budenholzer. He showed us in the regular season this year he is willing to do that. They've played a more switchable style defensively. But what he does with Lopez will define how they handle a series against the Nets. And if the Nets don't have Durant in a series against Milwaukee, stick a fork at them. Well, I feel like all Brooklyn is praying for right now is to have all three guys healthy because the one number above all numbers that stuck out to me is 186 minutes. That's how many minutes they've played together, the big three. Victor Oladipo, John Wall have played more minutes, and uh, Christian Wood have played more minutes together this year. And Victor Oladipo is not even on the Rockets anymore. It just shows you how they need – if any, if all this is going to happen, they just need to be on the court. And you need health, and you got to pray for it. Well, that's it. I mean, listen, you got to have these guys healthy. And, I'm not, again, I'm not worried about them playing well together offensively. I think they're going to be fine offensively. They have very clear, defined roles offensively. And all three of these guys want to win and could care less about getting their own. Listen, James Harden's led the league in scoring multiple years. He doesn't care. Kyrie Irving knows what it's like to win games and win titles, and he still exists as the only guy in the NBA right now to hit a game-winning shot in game seven of an NBA final on a road. Um, he knows what it's like to win and, and wants to win, and Kevin Durant won two titles in Golden State, and he, you know, he knows what it's like to win also and doesn't need a lot of shots. These, they're, they're willing to share the ball with each other. So offensively, they're not a problem. Plus, Joe Harris has been a stalwart for this team all year and fits really well with the other three of those guys on the offensive end. I have no worries about what they're going to do offensively. So the minutes together don't bother me there. I worry about what happens defensively. And, and that's, and, and I think that's where what something to watch with the nets from an early stage on the playoffs is what they do with defensively against lesser competition. Cause that very well can have carry over to what they do when the competition gets tougher. You know, it, it's funny, Brian, we've mentioned, Thibodeau, we've mentioned, you know, uh, we even mentioned Doc Rivers. Jack talked about Doc Rivers before. Uh, One guy we haven't mentioned is Steve Nash. (laughs) And, you know, uh, I don't think anybody ever talks about Steve. And the only reason I think that anyone even knows that he's coaching is because he's on the post-game Zooms. Um, And, and, you know, so that's, that's the perception. But what's the reality, Brian? Is Steve Nash really coaching this team? Or is it is it like uh, you know the, the the Durant and and you know Kyrie talked about we really don't need a coach. I mean, what's your perception? Nobody knows the NBA better than you. What do you think uh, the role that Steve Nash plays for uh, you know the the Brooklyn Nets? Is he coaching this team, and is he somebody that's going to you know play a factor uh, in this uh, march in the playoffs? 
Yes, he's done. Listen, he had a very rough first 15 games, Mark. He made some mistakes. He was he looked a little bit in over his head. Um, But what happened is once injuries started happening and they started losing guys, Nash kind of gave him an opportunity to impose his will a little bit on this group. And he did a fantastic job of it. He's done. Listen, throw those first 15 games out and he's been excellent. Factor in those first 15 games, and he's still done a very good job. This is not an easy team to coach. You got guys in and out of the lineup every day, and he's got to keep his role players engaged and keep his role players understanding that, you know, when you, it's very important to understand this in terms of the NBA. When you have high usage players, players with the ball in their hands a lot, you're, and you're running them in and out of a lineup, the other guys have to pick up when they're not there and step back when they are there. That's harder than people realize. And it's sometimes it's really tough to integrate high usage guys back into a lineup after they've been out a while. Um, He's done that seamlessly with all of these injuries and, and, and all these guys going in and out and the load management and Kyrie leaving. Listen, a few times early in the year, he threw Kyrie under the bus publicly. He has not done that in months. He realized the error of his ways very quickly and understands the importance of having all three of these guys on his side. And remember one thing, he was not Kyrie Irving's choice to coach this team. He was Kevin Durant's choice to coach this team. So he had a little mountain to climb with Kyrie. But I do know that you know Kyrie runs pickup games in his hometown of West Orange, New Jersey, for a large portion of the offseason. Steve Nash spent plenty of time in gyms, multiple gyms, in West Orange, New Jersey, watching Kyrie Irving and the group of other NBA players and guys that play in Europe that he gathered that are all from the area. Durant, because he lives in New York, would come out to some of these runs. Steve Nash was a regular there in terms of watching, observing, making friends with Kyrie, get close. So there's a lot of respect for Nash. And from what I understand on this roster, he has everybody's attention. His even-keeled approach is something that everybody is taken to. Um, early in the year where there are guys raising eyebrows and scratching their heads a little bit, there's no doubt that there was. But Nash has settled very well into the job. He never panicked when things weren't going well for him. And not that the team was playing bad, but things weren't going well for Steve Nash. When you have all this talent, you're going to win games. But he is definitely coaching this team. He definitely has these guys' attention. He has their respect. And he has added a lot of value in what has been a pretty chaotic and tumultuous situation. I feel like a lot of people going into the year weren't giving Steve Nash enough credit for how great his basketball mind is. Like, it's the game of basketball. When, you ha- when you're that smart and have that much IQ, you're obviously going to be able to tell these players what to do, and they'll listen if they know what they're talking about. When you've been through it and you've been a great player in the league, there is always a, m- a mutual respect. And I-, I really hope that they can all get behind him in the way that this can become a dynasty because as much as I'm a Nick fan, I love New York basketball and I would love to see the Nets win some finals. Jack, one thing's very important to NBA players, especially star NBA players for a coach. You must add value to winning. The bottom line is this. They don't care what you did as a player. You know, Magic Johnson failed as a coach. You must add value to winning. And no one wants to hear how good you were when you played. They, what they want to do is, uh, is, is see that you're helping them win. You're helping them play better, do better, get a better contract, be part of a winning situation. Nash struggled to do that early on. He really did. And listen, I, one thing I worry about with Steve Nash in a playoff situation, is he a good enough defensive coach? Now, listen, he's got Emi Yudoka on that bench. 
He's got uh, Jacques Vaughn on that bench, and those guys run the defense. Nash and Mike D'Antoni run the offense. So he's got assistants that he can factor in that can help him out with stuff. And to my understanding, Nash has leaned a lot on these assistants when it comes to stuff defensively. But ultimately, that's going to be what defines him. How good they're, they're going to be great offensively. He's got great talent. Their system is an equal opportunity system. No one's out to get their own. Offensively, they're as unselfish as unselfish could be. They're a wonderful offensive team. And, and they, they've taken Nash's philosophies as their own, which is great. But what happens defensively is going to be the big question. Steve Nash has been a very good regular season coach this year. But the playoffs are a different animal, and we got to see what he does. Well, that's been another great episode on the Gotham Sports Machine. Thanks for coming on, Brian. It's been, it's been, it's really been a blast. Guys, my pleasure. Let's do it again soon. I really enjoyed it. Definitely. Thanks, buddy. You have a safe trip. All right. Thanks so much. You take care. Bye bye. See you.